Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Linda Scottson. She's the the developer of uh, what's called the Linda Scottson Technique. has to do with uh, breathing to help people that are in various medical situations. Yeah, well, just tell me a bit about your technique. It's called the Linda Scottson Technique, but I don't know what that means so tell listeners about your technique and how you came to be where you are yes so i began um sort of 43 years ago when uh, my son was seriously brain injured i'd been widowed i had a young daughter i was told that his condition was uh, hopeless uh he had it was a very bad blood incompatibility it was very well written up and uh, he wouldn't be able to see hear move relate to the world about him And I was told to give him phenobarbitone and take him home. And, well, actually, they said I should put him into care, but that's extraordinary because I obviously was full of love for him. So I did the the most, to me, sensible, immediate thing that I could do. I put him back against my skin and I, I kept him close to me all the time that the health visitors would come in and say, oh, why have you got him on you all the time? Extraordinary, because there was a there was a lot of love flowing between us. But B, he was getting my breathing. He was getting my breathing and he was getting my movement. He was getting my heartbeat. And, and I was also celebrating his birth for him. I thought he deserved that. And actually, two months on from doing this, he did seem appreciably better. Unfortunately, then he had uh, kidney failure. So it was a month in Guy's Hospital with kidney failure. And then when he came out, I and they were amazed that he'd survived. I continued with this. And I worked in many different ways, trying to move his limbs in rhythmical movements, trying to do things that I felt would actually help his breathing even then, because I could see it wasn't quite right. His, I had another child. I could see his rib cage was flaring out to the side more than it should. 
And sometimes he seemed very catching his breath. So I did many things with him. And the things that I did, which, which were also going back as far as I could in time, appreciably helped him. And, and to the extent that I was persuaded to write a book about him. And that became a bestseller. So I, I got to know a lot of people with, with children with problems. But I could see that I hadn't got far enough with him. Actually, he could walk, which was extraordinary. And he could see and, and clearly he had some hearing with hearing aids. But he... What was your son's condition? What was it called? Or is um, it called? Well, it was called cerebral palsy, severe athetoid cerebral palsy. But, but the, the, what prompted it was something called connectress, which is a blood incompatibility, where, where the mother's blood works against the blood group of, of the child she is carrying, treats the child she is carrying as an invader, tries to get rid of it. So it, it creates this yellow bile pigment, which poisons the brain and also makes the baby very yellow for, for a while, too. So it's a very serious, well-documented condition. So it wasn't, they couldn't really say to me, oh, uh, um, we must have made a mistake because with a bilirubin count as high as Doran's, you wouldn't make a mistake. And I more or less did the opposite of most things that I had been told. But I could see as he was getting older, above the age of six, he was still quite floppy, although he could walk. And he wasn't, he wasn't really able to speak. Although I felt he was bright, I didn't think that he really was uh, had a very sophisticated understanding of what was going on around him, except in terms of, of play and being with me. I felt there's, there's far more to Doran to be unlocked. I sent a copy. I didn't have a television, but some kind soul lent me a television and told me to look at what was called a horizon program on the brain. And there was a Professor Patrick Wall, who was head of the Cerebral Studies Department at London University, speaking on it, speaking about brain plasticity. And it was very fascinating. It coincided with my own thoughts. So I sent him a copy of the book and he invited me up to meet him. I also explained to him what I thought. I thought that the problems with recovery of function after the brain, after a brain injury in children were not just to do with the brain. The main problem was that the respiratory system had been affected. And I had some other kind soul had lent me some textbooks in physiology. So I'd been able to see that the main respiratory muscle, which is the diaphragm, which was clearly weakened on, which is under the bottom part of the rib cage, just slightly above the bottom of the sternum, that's the breastbone going down towards, towards the bottom of the rib cage. This muscle, which looks, well, fairly uninteresting, actually is a phenomenal muscle. It, it is a pump that pumps the deoxygenated blood from the veins back to the heart. And in fact, the deoxygenated blood from all the organs and tissues of the body back to the heart. And the amount of oxygenated blood that can get into the brain is determined by the amount of deoxygenated blood that can be removed. So if your diaphragm is weak and you've got a brain injury, then the flow of blood round and through the, the little capillaries near to the damaged area, that's going to be missed quite a bit. Okay, quick question here. What what does it mean to have a weak diaphragm? And how does someone uh, know if they have a weak diaphragm? Got a weak, it's very easy, really, because your diaphragm is also your main postural muscle. So if you tend to sit with your back a little bent or your shoulders a little forward, if you can't keep your head quite in the midline, it, it's quite a sweet position to keep it, but if it's a little to the left, a little to the right, then the likelihood is that 
what is underlying this uh, uh, postural anomaly, or it's not quite such an anomaly because many people do have weaker diaphragm simply by sedentary work all the time. But but of course, um, when it's a brain injured child, it's it's another problem, and it it's always happens. It always happens after a brain injury, because this is well. The story goes on, if I can just go quickly, because obviously I didn't have this information until I got sure. to the university. So I'm trying to do it in, in, in a bit of a sequence. The, the lovely thing about Professor Wall was he didn't treat me uh, as an artist who didn't really know what they were talking about. Well, he must have, he obviously had asked me up there. He said, look, what you're saying is very interesting, but I think you would like to put it more scientifically. Why don't you phrase it like this? And he kept helping me in this way. And then he he found somebody who would help me to do some research on the breathing of the children. I still didn't know the origin of the problem. I still didn't. I could see it was there, but I didn't know its origin. And uh, finally, he said, I think you should do a PhD. There there are PhDs who don't have uh, first degrees in science in this department. You can do three years in one. And I think you should be in the psychology department, which was a wise choice. So I'll find someone to back for you. And I think you're up to it. So I said, oh, right. Yes, <laughs> I'll do that. So then it was a long time ago. So there was no Internet, really. So I, I had the university library. And in the library, I found literature that told me some very revealing things. And one of these was that if there was a drop in oxygen to the brain, it's called hypoxia. If there was a drop in oxygen to the brain, then there will be a compensatory redirection of blood supply away from the, the, the fetuses, lungs and diaphragm to the brain, to help the brain. Now, this may work in many people. There may be a slight weakness somewhere, but it just gives them their character. But they have a mark on their respiratory system, which, if placed under further stresses in later life, can actually uh, contribute to or or even cause a, uh, a poor health state of one kind or another. And unfortunately, collisions don't look that far back. You You have a lot of symptoms but they tend to treat the symptoms with the pharmacological products rather than look back in time and try to establish why, why it's your, your, your liver, your kidneys, your, your pancreas, uh, um, your lungs that are a problem. And in fact, when you understand the work the diaphragm does, you'll see that it is a multifunctional organ on which the health of all the other organs in your body really depend. If you had a brain injury, then the situation is much worse because now you've you've got dead cells and broken blood vessels in your brain and what they need to uh, optimize what that area of the brain needs to 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 optimize functionally is increased amount of oxygen in the vulnerable area. But now you're not going to get it because your diaphragm is too weak to provide. So your diaphragm. What What does that mean? So if you have a weak diaphragm, what happens when you breathe? What does that mean you're not getting enough oxygen? What is happening in the breathing process? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, 
the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What happens is uh, not that you're not getting enough oxygen because you'd be very sick if you were. That there are respiratory adaptations that take place because blood supply produces electrical activity. So the diaphragm full of blood is electrically active and the respiratory centers in the brain stem can detect it. Ah, diaphragm's working, everything is well. Diaphragm is not working so well. We have to switch respiratory control. So they switch the respiratory control to the upper chest and to the abdomen to support the diaphragm. So, so breathers can be very varied. They, they can, the, 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 the diaphragm may be very underdeveloped and small, or it may be weak and flat and exhausting itself all the time and supported by these two other positions. But nothing can beat a diaphragm. So, your your respiratory circulatory postural system is not going to be working so well because you've got a weaker diaphragm. When you were born, your diaphragm is very flat. I have some pictures of it, but of course, we're not visual, are we? So it's a beautiful, beautiful crimson dome. It's it's full of um, blood vessels because it's 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 got such a huge network of nerves. So the phrenic nerve, which is the diaphragm nerve, that 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 comes from the neck, it divides into and it goes each side of the diaphragm, then it splits in four, and then this huge network of nerves grows. But to grow nerves and to feed nerves, they need blood supply. So they need blood vessels. So if they're not enough blood vessels, the nerves simply will work less efficiently to send the signals for the beautiful crimson diaphragm to do its work so efficiently. Also, the diaphragm should be provided with what is called fatigue-resistant muscle fibers because it has to keep going and it has to keep meeting each new challenge for oxygen as, as we make it. So this means that the, there is an inherent weakness there. So again, you're using your, your upper chest. Now, if you use your upper chest, let's say that you, you don't have any uh, particularly marked brain injury, but you're an upper chest breather. So breathing with the upper chest, that's equivalent of emotional breathing. We have two sorts of breathing, two main sorts of breathing. One with the, the upper chest when you're emotional. <gasps> when you're excited, when you're anxious, and and the diaphragm breathing. So the upper chest breathing creates arousal. Oh, oh, I must remember that. I'll remember to meet at at, um, six o'clock or half past six. But but you're only meant to be aroused for a moment. Then you should breathe down with your diaphragm in order to make the appropriate plan and to carry on with your day until the moment when you have to get ready for the meeting. So this arousal is laid down to a part of the brain called the limbic system, which changes your breathing pattern in relation to your emotions and also gives you a very focus. So you're focusing within the context of this um, brain structure. And that means you can be very clear and very quick, but you can't connect with a lot of other things. So people usually think about it in terms of flight or fight. If you're trying to get out of a burning building, then you don't want to think of where you left your handbag or or your briefcase or anything else, any other complicated thing. You just want to get out. And you don't really want to speak or listen to anything very much except a very um, simple order. 
Okay, then of course you've got to run, and and in the course of running you come down to diaphragmatic breathing again. But we we do this for much more minor events all the time. I'm sure you'll recognize. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. If you get stuck breathing here, which is very easy to do, then you start to be getting anxious. You can get panic attacks. You can get post-traumatic stress to a larger or smaller degree because you're going over and over and over this information that's been laid down in your limbic system. Whereas once you breathe again with your diaphragm, then remember your diaphragm is responsible for changing respiratory rates and depths. It, it's, it's, it's feeding the whole brain. Your upper thoracic breathing is, is meant to be going much more directly into this focused, immediate reaction in the limbic system. Okay. Yeah, do you have a protocol for people that suffer anxiety? Yes, this, it's wonderful. It's so wonderful. Once you understand it, once you understand that it's, it's not something that uh, was intended to be in your character. What, what probably happened was, because actually most problems in later life are created before we are born. They're laid down before we are born. It's called the fetal origins hypothesis, and it's been well documented by various professors in England. So this, this means that suppose before you were born or, or just after there was a slight drop in oxygen around uh, some of the structures in the limbic system. So this means that uh, you are more likely to be trapped in that system, thinking over and over and over again of some topic that causes you anxiety, concern, worry. And when you're breathing with your upper chest, you're reducing the blood oxygen to your diaphragm. So the balance in the brain has gone. You're focusing on those brain structures. There's enough blood supply there to intensely focus on those brain structures and what has been recorded there, which has been either something that was pleasant or unpleasant. And it will tend to repeat it. It's trying to remind you. It's trying to be helpful. But under normal circumstances, your brain would reconnect with other areas of information, and that would then recharacterize that event. Oh, well, it's, we don't really have to worry so much about that because of this. And anyway, that only just like, happened. You mean like you can deliberately couple different types of breathing styles to what yes. you're experiencing to change your experience? Yes, yes absolutely. Yes. Breathing very much uh, characterizes your experience. And, and anybody could do it. They can make themselves very anxious by breathing up here for any length of time and that's where you get panic attacks because of course if you're breathing up there for any length of time oxygen levels are dropping which makes you panic so you breathe more like that you don't need a pill you need to change your breathing. oh yeah i've heard people go i can't breathe i can't breathe yes. and they're like, yeah i understand yes. what you mean yes a quick thought occurred so when you're going through a particular experience <laughs> an emotional experience or let's say you're even studying to learn material can you use your breathing to, I guess, completely change how you experience emotions or yes, if you're trying to learn something, can. can you do it to help you, you learn can. better? You can. Sometimes this is difficult, which is why if you can, if you understand how to just gently increase the blood supply back into your diaphragm again, where the light, gentle pressures, which I developed, which uh, really copy the internal pressures of breathing within the body and their effect on the microcirculation and, and I suppose the magnetic fields as well. 
but but you can just think about the the tiny blood vessels you're just slightly compressing and decompressing so you're creating pulses of blood increasing blood through your diaphragm so then the respiratory center re-identifies the diaphragm and you come down and breathe with your diaphragm so so that's an easier way of doing it than trying to alter your breathing pattern if you've been a habitual thoracic breather you can try and you may be able to do it but until your diaphragm is a bit stronger it will be more tricky once your diaphragm is stronger it becomes automatic yeah that's very interesting so i'm imagining if you take a deep breath and if you direct your breath to the bottom of your belly or let's say to your back or to your front the breath i guess would push against all the material inside you yes, it does. and compress it, does. it and, and make a lot of secondary and tertiary effects from that. Right? Yes. Yes. This is so obvious. It's so obvious. And again, there are lots of papers that refer to this, you know, um, during fetal development, um, the diaphragm moves, it's called fetal breathing. And this actually starts at two months of age, but uh, around three months before birth, it's, it's becoming really frequent and strong. And these little movements of the flat, underdeveloped fetal diaphragm put pressure against the lungs. And it is known that this triggers the switching on of the genetic material in the lungs. Pressure is becoming recognized as a trigger for switching on genetic material. Pressure and the presence of oxygen. I think if you remember about three years ago, three scientists got the Nobel Prize for showing that the presence of oxygen in the cell was a trigger for the cell switching on its genetic material and maintaining it. Though, if you think logically, why would a cell switch on its genetic material if it wasn't having any oxygen and it wasn't having any information? Because life is movement. We never stop moving because we never stop breathing. So, so all the time, the, these little gentle pressures ag- against the cell membrane are occurring. And this is giving information, more and more information. And it connects everything up. Too long, I think, we've seen all our organs in isolation from one another. They're actually all connected by the diaphragm. And human development is driven by diaphragmatic b- breathing. I know, you know, again, we're, we're not visual right now. We are on a podcast. But are you able to describe one method of breathing that people can practice while they're listening to change their state and what what will it do? Well, it's useful to know that the diaphragm descends when you inhale. Many people think that it must ascend to lift the chest. But when you think a little bit more logically, the descent of the diaphragm allows the lungs to inflate much more. So you need to have space The diaphragm is connected to all your internal organs, your pelvic floor. The whole lot move up and down when you breathe. So what a good inhalation is, is the the diaphragm flares out slightly to the sides and moves down. And and it's the, the dome flattens, but doesn't flatten completely. So it's still got sides to it, which are pushing slightly on, on, on the walls of the rib cage. So what you don't want to try and do is push your belly in and out, just using the uh, abdominal muscles to do that. That just goes out naturally while, while space is, is being made for, for the descending diaphragm. Good breathing. If you put your hands um, uh, just around your lower rib cage with your fingertips just touching. So when you breathe in, you should feel those fingertips just parting a little bit because the diaphragm should be moving out to the sides. And if you put your hand 
on your over your navel you should just feel a little movement there but not one that you've made yourself you 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 haven't attempted to uh, move your abdominal muscles you, you can just feel the expansion of your lungs as the diaphragm drops and it, it, that's such a refreshing good feeling but as soon as you start to breathe up with the upper chest it becomes more stressful for the whole body but many people do that all the time because this is the way they think they should b- breathe and the little problematic consequences are not related to the way you b- breathe or to the because because they're related directly to circulation in the upper body circulation in the lower body emotional state so many consequences we hook in on ourselves because we don't breathe optimally and and it's not easy you can go to the gym you can go to your yoga class or your tai chi class class but if your diaphragm is weaker and you you can't really identify it your reaction will be to use any muscle to create the illusion that you're using your diaphragm and you'll be tired and you won't be satisfied and you'll see your other friends in the class doing quite well and you'll wonder why can't i do this What's wrong with belly breathing or trying to deliberately breathe into different parts of your body? No, no. What I'm saying is nothing wrong when your belly moves because it's your diaphragm moving. But when you're moving your belly because your, your abdominal muscles are doing it, that's artificial. It doesn't mean that, that the abdomen is being displaced because the diaphragm is descending. You see? If okay. you're breathing, I mean, up, your belly actually, out. So, so yes, right. so you are belly breathing, but but you're not deliberately trying to move your abdominal muscle. Well, it's, I can see like you could do it. You, you could you could do it two ways. It looks like you could push your belly out and breathe, and like you said, you think you're breathing into your belly, or I guess you could breathe and let your diagram diaphragm push your belly out. Yes, but maybe now focus that's your fine. There that's, so that you lead. Yeah, that's what it's intended to be. You can direct your attention to different spots as you breathe, as long as you're thinking of the breath. You can move your breath anywhere because your circulation, your your breath, your diaphragm creates a, a responsive circulatory system so that it's responding to the needs for oxygen of all the tissues in the body. So from your 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 toe to um, your your brain, your your diaphragm is involved in this. So yes, you can direct it, but but you've got to understand that you're directing your breathing, that you're not just um, sort of tensing a muscle in what appears to be the, the location you, you want to contact. And to do that, you've got to know your diaphragm, you know, and, and I, I, well, we have these bodily organs, don't we? That's us. We live with them. We, we don't really know them. We don't even talk to them. We don't say thank you to them. They're, they're, they're all performing roles, but very few of us could describe what they are. And, and they wouldn't be able to discuss either what holds them all together, how they all connect. And in fact, they all connect to a wonderful web. Um, it's like a fiber optic web called fascia, of which the diaphragm is made. And, and this fascia that surrounds all your organs connects with the diaphragm. The main artery and the main vein and your esophagus go through your diaphragm, right? And are affected by the diaphragm as, as you breathe, as it moves. It also helps to pulse onto them. And the vagus nerve, which a lot of people have heard of, that goes through the, the gap where the esophagus goes into the diaphragm. So it's feeding all that information into the diaphragm as well. 
diaphragm has a lot to contend with and it's um your breathing affects your heart rate very much as well uh, and diaphragm has reflexes okay. so you discovered this and you used it to help your son dramatically improve his condition what does your practice look like today like who do you and how who do i help well children with autism children with cerebral palsy children with various symptoms anyone who has a neurological condition we help people with anxiety panic attacks we help people who have various illnesses because when uh, your diaphragm is central to your immune system because it drives the lymph around the body and and the lymph flow as you probably know is your body's main detoxifying system so if your diaphragm is weaker and exhausted trying to help you it needs some help to continue to help you so we have people who have been sick in many ways people who who think they've got long covid that's what they're diagnosed with but usually when when that sort of condition arises when you trace back into their history you can see a whole lot of very clear reasons why they 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 have reacted as they as they did and it's this just tipped them over that made them different and of course when you look back into the the fetal origins of the situation you can see that there are variations because of the frequency intensity duration and timing of of the drop in oxygen which each individual person has experienced one way or another so it's very nice and i treat i, I treat over skype i treat over skype and and zoom and it is so a whole variety of of different conditions work very well over that and it's lovely treating the children because in a way over Skype you see them in their home environment too so I, I give a consultation and and then we have the training sessions which are, um the training it's very 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 light gentle pressures uh we hear don't we and hearing is uh, uh the movement of air uh-huh but we don't feel that movement of air and and so it, it goes into the fluid in the cochlea of the ear and and this m- movement of the fluid which has been generated from the movement of the air from the outside then affects the nerves in the cochlea and we translate that into sound we don't really think about it but all the time bodies creating fluctuating movements within the fluid our bodies are mostly fluid our cells are fluid so there is a language there and and once i had seen the connection between that language of pressure and switching on genetic material and electromagnetic field and and just uh, the movement of blood it, it, and then i looked at fetal breathing and i looked what the infant did after it was born as well and i thought what i have to do is to replicate that and we had equipment called uh, mm-hmm. in adaptive computerized respiratory plasmography which okay. actually to say and this is um a computerized registration of the b- breathing pattern of the upper thorax uh, and the breathing pattern, pattern of the diaphragm below so this was very interesting too because you could see even say before the children had had any length of time with the exercises you you could see how their breathing was before you applied the exercises and as soon as you applied them you could see a difference and you saw a difference between children with cerebral palsy who breathed very fast their diaphragm was very effortful and flat and they breathed fast and sometimes there was very little at, at the top or if there was it was also very fast because a baby's diaphragm is very flat which is why a baby breathes fast 
<laughs> initially in, in order to get sufficient oxygen. And then the work it does on its own diaphragm helps to strengthen it. Children with um, a diagnosis of autism and those people with anxiety, they breathe very differently because you could see the upper chest movement in, in emotional patterns, stopping and starting, a little breath holding, a little quick, a little slow, another pause. And either that was dragging the diaphragm in or it was really dominating the diaphragm. So these were very different. So we could see the, the difference when you actually applied the exercises. And we could also see after six months that whatever diagnosis you had, the diaphragm movements were so much more normal and typical and nice. And you could also see, of course, everybody's posture was so much better and symptomatically their, their symptoms were consequently reduced. But an interesting thing about the young baby, which I think is, is quite uh, something to, to consider, is that when the baby is born, it's oxygen limited. It can only make very tiny little movements. So, and these little movements come from the little springy joints. So baby is um, searching for pleasure. Its little springy movements are nice. So it's been videoed, they make um, literally tens of little rhythmical coordinated patterns of movement. So these movements help to strengthen their diaphragm and then they have more oxygen nutrition to help them make stronger movements, which strengthen the diaphragm still more. So it's beautiful balance between supply and demand. As we get older, we forget that balance. So we will push ourselves in different ways or find that we are pushed by external forces so that we are already borderline stressing the diaphragm and we don't walk enough. Uh, walking is very nice because the muscles between the pelvis and the diaphragm are helping to work as we move and with each step that we take they're moving and our breathing is moving up and down into our abdomen so that's really giving a wonderful deep internal massage and bringing health into our bodies and uh, we don't do that enough we, we, we are not intended to live in this civilized state basically well very good linda um how people find out more about your work do you have a book out you know how can they find more resources do you have a website where can people go yes, to learn more yes, about yes. The, the website is www.lindascotson.co.uk. And that will take you to my website. But on the bar at the top, you can go into the children's website as well. So you can see it from both points of view. But there are a couple of little videos on, on my website and a lot about the diaphragm very directly that will help you to understand that before you, you if you mm. want to, then need to go into the children's website off the bar. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Good reading. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.